Hello everyone, welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, Mike Sherburn, and I'm the pastor at WBC. It's good to have you with us. Uh, it's good to know that you have, whether on accident or on purpose, found our YouTube channel. There's quite a lot here to look at in terms of teaching, but also uh, some songs of worship that we've recorded ourselves. Do take the opportunity, if you can, just to flick through, whether you're new to us or not, just have a look at maybe some of the other resources that you might find on the channel. I need to warn you that as I've been setting up my camera and tripod here, uh, I have been, um, interrupted is not quite the right word, but I've been very aware of low-flying aircraft twice and quite a noisy, but very enjoyably noisy, steam engine uh, just making its way through the valley, which is just over there. So I'm down at the Holy Well behind St Lecumin's Church, making the most of dry weather to film outside. And we are looking uh, for the third time at a passage from a letter that James wrote. Uh, this is in the New Testament. James comes just before, just after Hebrews uh, and just before 1 Peter. Uh, and I'd encourage you, if you are working your way through this letter, either regularly or dipping in and out, to read the whole letter all at one go. It's not terribly long. Uh, it's worth getting the sense of the flow of how the author meant for it to be read. It's worth remembering as well that when it was written and sent, it would have been uh, for it to be read aloud in a church setting, perhaps one of those little house churches that were dotted around Asia Minor in the early days of the Christian church, when Christians weren't referred to Christians, but followers of the way. Christians was a title that came later and was supposed to be um, derogatory, supposed to be uh, a way of saying, oh, you're just little Christs, you're not important. And yes, it's stuck, Christian is stuck. And we very often interchange that word with disciple, which means follower of Jesus, or perhaps more accurately, apprentice to Jesus, recognising him as master. Anyway, I'm going to read the first uh, a few verses of James chapter 2. Um, I'm going to pray first and then we'll be diving in and having a look at some of how we might understand this passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognise that as James wrote this letter, he was seeking to serve you, recognising you as God, recognising you as supreme. So we want to put ourselves where he was and respond to you in the same way. We want to recognise that we don't know best, and that James, flawed as he was, had an insight that helps us to know how to follow you well. So help us to do that, to carry forward some of what we look at in this session, that we might faithfully follow you and be filled with your spirit. Amen. Right then, James chapter 2, I'm just going to reach forward. It's on the screen in front of me and I need to make it roll forward so that I don't have to keep moving it. So here we go. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised through those uh, promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What an amazing thing to find. What an amazingly direct bit of writing uh, from a man we believe was almost certainly Jesus' half-brother who has come to recognise Jesus as Messiah and King and Son of God and he's really going quite uh, in hard on those who follow Jesus and reminding them of some key truths that they need to make sure they don't forget. It's challenging and actually it's important for us to realise that a big part of being disciples, a big part of being uh, apprentices to Jesus is being challenged and being willing to be challenged. If we feel that we kind of know how this works and we kind of probably have got the basics down and, and, and we're going to be okay now, then we are already in a dangerous place of feeling that we've arrived. Instead, it's important that we hear the tone that James is giving us and recognise that all of us are still in a process of being transformed through the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. And that engaging with letters like this, and indeed all of scripture, is crucial in accepting the need to be transformed and seeing how that transformation needs to happen. Let's not forget as well, that while we recognise that we need to be transformed, if that transformation were to happen automatically, so sort of, sort of spiritual supernatural process that didn't involve us then there would be no need for James to write a letter. Instead what we learn from it being written and so much else of these letters in the New Testament too is that if we are to follow Jesus we have to make choices. We have to accept that we need to be challenged, sometimes rebuked, so that we might be different, to make different choices and follow different priorities so that we might be more like Jesus. Anyway, Let's have a quick look at a couple of things uh, from this passage. It's very clearly about favouritism. It's about favouritism from the point of view of those who are already part of the church. That is to say, an ecclesia, those who follow Jesus and live in community doing so. Ecclesia is a borrowed word. It originally meant town council or something like it. Anyway. And it got borrowed by the early Christians. Uh, in order to represent something of those who were set apart, but together, as the word ecclesia, though it meant town council, actually literally translate as those set apart or set apart ones. It's a Koine Greek bit of um, stuff going on there uh, from that period in history. So we're looking at how favouritism 
is recognised as happening in the church and James's response to it and how he urges the church to react or to be aware if you like and this hasn't come from nowhere so in chapter one we saw how James made it really clear that that a key point to make to the church to disciples is the importance of not being double-minded and we said when we first looked at this that this wasn't to do with being hypocritical it wasn't about saying you may you may pretend to be one person when actually you're another and it, it wasn't to do with saying you might put on one face in one situation a different face in a different situation most of us recognize that we are slightly different people whether we're with friends or family or in a work setting or among strangers all of those different versions of us are truly us we need to present ourselves in different ways according to the circumstances so this has nothing to do with being two-faced it has instead to do with being double-minded and that is to be trying to occupy two places at the same time and what James is talking about here is people who want to claim or do actually claim that their whole trust is in Jesus and yet at the same time they absolutely put their confidence in something else as well or instead this is what a, a, a tutor of mine when I was at Bible college referred to as um, functional atheism. So she said a lot of people in churches are functionally atheists. They say they trust God, but when push comes to shove, they're pretty, pretty sure they're going to have something else that they can fall back on rather than actually being confident that God will come through for them. They'll have a safety net of some other kind and they'll work quite hard at maintaining that safety net. And James is saying it's really important that we're not like this. Don't be double-minded. Don't don't have a, a brain that tries to hold on to two worldviews at the same time. Because trusting in God is a, an exclusivity thing. If you trust in God, you can't sort of trust in God and sort of trust in something else at the time. Either you do trust in him or you don't. And at the heart of this is the understanding we have that we are saved by grace. Now, from time to time, people highlight that perhaps I might, um, the phrase is sometimes used, is preach the gospel more. And I think what's meant by that when I, when I interrogate what people are after is they're saying that I don't do enough calling for conversion or telling maybe the story of the cross and the resurrection. It is really important that we recognise, and whenever we talk about grace and whenever we talk about Jesus' character and what God is like, that grace is at the heart of that. Now, what is grace? Grace is, a, is best described as um, the giving and receiving of things that are not earned or deserved. So our connection to Jesus is utterly dependent on grace. We haven't earned anything. We can't buy anything from God. We can't trade anything with God. We just don't have the resources to do that. So everything that God gives us is given freely. He chooses to give it to us and he chooses out of love. He doesn't have any obligation to us. He doesn't have any need to pay us back. He doesn't owe us anything. So instead what he does is he gives and he gives and he gives. And we benefit from all that giving. And that is called grace. And the flip side of that is same coin. The opposite side is mercy. So mercy is where we don't receive what we do deserve. Mercy is when you have done something wrong, you've got something wrong, and the person who is justifiably in a position to call you out on it forgives you. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. 
he says, it does matter, but I'm choosing forgiveness as a response. That's mercy. So mercy is not getting what we do deserve and grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is the basis on which we know Jesus. And in this situation, part of what James is saying is, if you, if you genuinely believe that grace is a thing, and that you haven't earned anything, then you cannot hold anybody else in higher or lower regard than yourself, because everything they have that's good is also given by God. You have no rights to anything God has given you. In lots of ways, we don't have any rights at all. I don't mean as in the UN's human rights. I think, I think on that basis, it's really good that humanity has managed to identify things that every human being should be able to access. What I would say is that, is that when it comes to spiritual reality, we're not owed anything. And if we aren't, then neither is anybody else. And so we are no better than others, and others are no better than us. And so we get to this point about favouritism. Who gets to be special, and why? Now, to get a grip on what James is going after here, we need to have a strong understanding of how socio-economic conditions worked in the Roman Empire in the first century, but actually most of the way through the Roman Empire. See, the reality was that about 8% of the people had pretty much all the money. And about 2% of the people were in a position where they might be able to progress their social standing. It's pretty unusual, uncommon for people to be able to work their way up into greater status. And 90% of the people had no chance of being anything other than what they were born as. You might be a slave, born into slavery. You might be sold into slavery. You might be somebody who works uh, in a serving role. The reality is, uh, with very, very few exceptions, you weren't going anywhere. You were going to do the thing that you started off doing the way, all the way through your life. The rags to riches stories really didn't happen. In that context, the thing that matters is status, and the thing that gets you status is wealth. So in, the, in that culture, the way to matter is to spend money. And money would give you the chance to buy yourself into um, political significance. You had to be voted in, but as soon as you were voted in, you were then expected to pay a fee to actually join the ranks of those who represented others. And so everything that mattered was down to um, how important you were, and how important you were was entirely dependent on how much money that you had and how much you could spend. So it really is a very tightly controlled culture. That's the culture James is writing to. And so in that culture, you've got people coming into church who had status, and they had status because they had wealth. And you'll notice that when James is describing these sort of measures of status or wealth, he doesn't say necessarily so much rich people, but people with, you know, big jewellery and nice clothes, because those things signified the status that came with wealth. And status meant people were treated differently across Roman culture. But if you're recognising that you depend on Jesus he's your first call and your last hope then you know that you haven't earned anything and you are no better than anybody else's and so the minute you start treating people differently giving them different status you behave like the culture around you is rather than behaving 
the way that somebody who has received goodness from the kindness of God might behave. Now this is tricky because it, it would seem that it's very human nature-ish to treat people differently according to how they look. You might remember going all the way back into the Old Testament that before David becomes king of Israel, while Saul is still king, he is anointed. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel, when he's first encountering this family that God has told him to go visit because one, one of the sons is going to become king next, David's not even there at the beginning. And he goes down the list, and uh, that's all down, almost down the row. It's like a, like a rose gallery thing, I suppose, uh, of, of all these sons. Um, their dad's called Jesse, and one of them's going to be king. And, and Samuel knows this much. But he, he looks at the first one and he goes, oh, I tell you what, God, he looks great. He looks like he'd be a really good leader. And God says, well, you might say that, but, you know, you're looking at what's outside. And I'm not. I'm looking at what the heart is like. And ultimately... Uh, after some toing and froing, David is anointed, despite the fact he's only a teenager at the time. Uh, he's anointed to become king later, and it takes a long time for that anointing to bear fruit. But he does become king, and he's recognised as one of those who walked most closely with God for all his faults and failures, and there were plenty of them. It isn't about how you look on the outside. It's about how God recognises your character to be. This is why it's so important when we talk about our walk as disciples when we talk about developing maturity uh, when we talk about how Paul recognized that part of his role uh, as a as a pastor missionary was to be able to present people mature before Jesus it was important for him as somebody who was planting churches not that people were able to agree with all the right doctrine but that they were growing and maturing in their understanding of Jesus their their knowledge of Jesus and their relationship with Jesus too those things were absolutely out of the heart of discipleship. Just being able to say, well, this is something I agree with, um, Paul would argue, isn't, isn't the thing. It's about a growth, a development, a spiritual maturity. And that's why one of our priorities in our smaller gatherings is that we are able to identify the areas in which we want to grow spiritually. It's a thing called spiritual formation. That we're able to be honest with the rows around us about what those things are, those areas where we want to grow, that we're willing to see them written down and then be accountable for how we grow in them. We're able to take responsibility and say, this is how I want to grow. So um, these are the steps I'm going to take to try and bring that about. Because there's a responsibility on us to grow spiritually. It's not going to happen automatically. So let's rewind a little bit. James makes it very clear that in a normal Christian setting, there is no discrimination between one person or another based on how they look or how they talk or how much money they have. He says, um, and I'm going to um, wind all the way back to verse four here, so bear with me a moment. He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I don't want anyone to think of me as an evil judge. But what James is reminding me is that the minute I treat people differently based on anything, I have started making my own judgments. Because you know what? Jesus doesn't look at people and say, well, you're better than you. It never happens. He may be able to identify that somebody knows him better. He may be able to identify that somebody's sin is like this and somebody else's sin is like that. But he doesn't look at us and say, well, you're better than that one. And so we cannot do that. 
And our temptation to do that is based on something other than whether we are being faithful to Jesus. James recognised it was a way that the culture, the Roman culture of the time, worked. And it's the, the same now as well. People will look at others and say, well, because you look like that, you must be more significant. I was reading recently about some of the, um, this is in the, in, uh, in the US, some of the uh, sort of ghetto culture marks of significance and it, that in some places it comes down literally just to the brand of polo shirt that you wear. And that if somebody can get your polo shirt off you, you lose your status. That is the reality of the world that we live in. Now, sometimes for us in churches, it's going to be more subtle. And we have some complications too. I'm very aware that I am in a very privileged position in the church where I serve because I have a, de a theology degree. I am trained to understand things in the Bible. That doesn't mean that I'm better than anybody else, but it means I have something to offer that maybe not everybody does. So I need to be able to exercise that humbly while never behaving as if or treating people as if I'm better than they are. It's still distinctive, but that doesn't mean it's better or worse. There are some who would say having a theological education isn't necessarily a blessing. There you go. All discrimination is, therefore, an exercise in evil judgment. Because none of it comes from Jesus. All of it takes us away from Jesus' perspective on who people are and what they're like. And so when James talks about favouritism, he's talking about this judgment separation, this creation of some sense of us and them. Sometimes we are the ones looking to be favourite. Sometimes we're the ones giving others favourite status, elevated status. And maybe that's because we want to be in with people who we see as more influential than we are. Maybe it's just because... Um, Oh, I was telling my daughter a story about when I was a journalist and I had the opportunity to ride in an 80-year-old vintage classic car which had um, no doors and no roof. Uh, and I just loved it. And there was a part of me that thought, I'm probably never going to get the chance to sit in that guy's car and have him drive me around again. Going 30 felt like going 75. It was amazing. Uh, and so it, it might be that I'm tempted to build a friendship there, to elevate that guy because of the car he has, because of my opportunity to spend time with him in that car. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes, sometimes we put ourselves in a position where we just want to be close to somebody who seems cooler and more interesting. Sometimes favouritism um, will lead to neglect. So those who don't get favourite status end up being forgotten or left behind. I think this is part of the reason why Jesus was so clearly pro-poor, because he knew those are the people who get forgotten. I don't think it was simply about saying they're suffering because they have less. I think there will be those who would say that sometimes having less materially actually prompts greater faith and is therefore a cause of a different kind of richness. I think Jesus saw that those who aren't favourited get neglected. Favoritism can also then be a trigger for abuse. As soon as you have an us and them, us tend to talk less well about them or treat them less well or find a different category for them to be part of. It happens so easily. On a very light-hearted end of things, I'm a Norwich City fan and the obvious them is Ipswich Town. 
it has to be said that I have from time to time said some fairly derogatory things about the town of Ipswich with very little basis other than that's where the them come from. I'm not necessarily proud of that. So you get the us and them, you get uh, the abuse that can come from that, you get neglect that can come from that, and you also, when, when favouritism happens, when discrimination happens, you are buying into the way our culture sees the world. And that is something that Jesus does not want us to be doing. We are to establish a culture of our own, based around grace, based around mercy. And we're to live that out. When it comes down to it, and we see this several times on the way through the letter of James, and if you've already read it through, you'll notice this. What James is really big on is saying, I don't care what you say you think. I don't care what you claim you believe. What I care about is what you do about it. Now, I had a conversation recently where we talked about how Martin Luther, the, the Reformation leader, said that James was a right story epistle and was not a big fan of it. And this has to do with the perspective that he brings on grace and works, which I think Luther found problematic. But actually all James does is reflect something that Jesus was very keen to point out. Not only did he say, let's stop Paul in um, Luke's gospel it's specifically that so in Matthew 5 we see blessed are the poor in spirit but in Luke we see actually blessed are the poor so not only does Jesus say that but in Matthew 25 he really drives home this idea that um, those who aren't favoured and he identifies those who are hungry uh, those who don't have good clothing those who are in prison those who are unwell those are the ones who should get the benefit of your activity, that they're the ones who's, who should benefit from your energy. Now, as ever, it's important that we recognise that Jesus and James aren't saying you should run yourself ragged, chasing after people. The idea is not to be poor stewards of your own time and energy so that you can meet some imagined, or tick some imagined box about kindness to the poor, but there is a sense of priority. And what James helpfully does is help us recognise that what we're looking to do is fight discrimination. We're looking to challenge assumptions that create an us and them set of circumstances. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of how um, a group of people who claim to be followers of Jesus will at some future time come face to face with him and say, um, Lord, Lord, we you know, we know you and we trust you and we want to be part of who you are and what you do. And that Jesus will say, no, I don't know you. You might call me Lord, Lord, but I have noticed what you do with your declaration. I have noticed how what you say you believe affects how you live. And I can see too big a gap between those two things. It's interesting, isn't it? Just as, just as I promised, there's a little bit of a background noise there. Somebody is using some kind of power tool. Bear with me. Hopefully you can hear me clearly enough. With that power tool running, I thought I'd, I'd uh, let it go for a bit. Uh, I've also, in the meantime, checked how long I've been talking for, and I can see that I need to round things up here. But I just want to pop on to have a look at uh, verses 8 to 10. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favouritism, 
you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. James, and how big a deal is this? James is saying, I think, and, and I'm sure you'll tell me if I've misread this, I think what James is telling us is that if we show favouritism, if there is discrimination in how we behave as individuals, but also as a church, if we find any way of doing them and us, either as individuals or as a church, then we might as well break the whole of the royal law. And you'll notice that what James tells us is that keeping the royal law is what means we're doing right. And the royal law is love your neighbour as yourself. And that seems to suggest to us that the thing that matters ultimately to Jesus is whether or not we love our neighbour. And this throws an interesting complexion on questions to do with our devotional life and our missional life. If our devotional life is our focus on our relationship with God and making sure that he's well maintained and that we stay in contact with God, then that is of course something that we want to prioritise. If we end up separating or, or having a mismatch between how high a priority we put on the devotional and the missional where we love our neighbour, if we get that imbalance then we're not keeping the royal law. So our devotional life, which is about how we engage with, connect with God and how we build our relationship with him, is in no way less important than our missional life. And if at any point we get to the stage of saying, I just want to be a little bit more rooted in God before I go out and share the good news of Jesus, then we are allowing the devotional life to have a higher priority than the missional life. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Now, obviously, we'll remember that Jesus, when asked what the most important commandment was, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And he then said, the second command is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. And I think that it it is, of course, appropriate to recognise that part of how we show our love for God is to show love for neighbour. That's good and appropriate. And I would urge you to do that. My concern only is that if we limit our love of God to the devotional and we don't give energy to the missional, if we delay finding ways to be alongside others and share the good news with them because we are busy building ourselves up in our devotional life, we've missed the point. And it's hard to imagine how Jesus would be okay with that. I am going to finish just with this. What I'm not doing in driving this point home, in in pulling forward what James is saying, what I'm not doing is saying you need to feel guilty that you're not doing enough. I'm not saying that. I am saying it is for each of us to reflect on what we are doing that is missional and to be intentional about it and to involve the disciples around us in it. It is not about adding more and more and more jobs to our task list because we believe that if we do them that'll be the thing that makes Jesus happy. This is simply about saying how do you actually put your faith to work and if that's something that's already happening brilliant share that with those around you so that they could be encouraged by what you do so that your example might help them shape how they do what they do. So let's pray together. 
uh, as we consider this element of how we might be all in for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us not to be half-hearted or double-minded. Help us not to create or allow to flourish an imbalance in our understanding of what matters. Help us not to discriminate based on anything, gender or skin colour or culture or education or appearance, cleanliness, anything. And give us the courage that we need to be honest about our favouritism and our discrimination and to seek your help in challenging it. Help us to have the courage to be honest with others that we might be accountable when we sin. And Lord, we pray that you would help us live what we believe. We pray all these things under the Father's care, with the Spirit's wisdom, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we'll look at the second part of James 2 next time and I'll see you very soon. Take care.